0: Hello, you are listening to Beyond the Briefcase, a law school podcast with Sarah and Meg. Listener, this is one of our many interview episodes. In these episodes, we bring a guest to talk about their experiences navigating creative and innovative areas of the legal profession. Law school application season is upon us, and hopefully the following episode will be able to bring you some clarity about your own process as well as choosing the right law school for you.
1: We're extremely excited to be introducing you to our guest today, Paula Price. She completed her undergraduate studies in international relations at UBC and also completed a joint Bachelor of Laws and Bachelor of Civil Laws at McGill University. She also completed graduate work in coaching. So she founded her own coaching business, Up-Level Lawyer Coaching to help other lawyers and is also the creator of the Joyful Practice for Women Lawyers, we shames to help women lawyers create more purpose and joy in their work. Paula, we're so excited to have you on our show today.
2: Thank you so much, Sarah, and thank you so much, Meg. It is a pleasure to be here, and hello to all your listeners. It's such a pleasure to have you here with us today. So,
1: Paula, just to start off, um, we know that you practiced litigation in the early stages of your career, so we just wanted to know what helped you lean towards litigation rather than transactional work.
2: Thank you so much, Sarah. And for the benefit of our listeners, I understand that many of your guests who are tuning in to listen are at the stages either of considering going to law school, they are in law school or they're recent graduates of law school. So I'm going to answer these questions from the perspective of what I think is going to be most helpful for people who are in those positions. So the question you asked me is how I ended up in litigation at the outset. And what I would like to share with you and with your audience is that I was not a born litigator. It wasn't something that I had aspired to from a young age. And in fact, I have for most of my life avoided public speaking (laughs) on purpose. And so um, litigation wasn't really where I saw myself. I think when I was in law school. And went. so I went to McGill. I was there, as you mentioned, uh, I did the dual degree, so common law and civil law. And when I went through, the process was probably similar to what it is currently. When you finish up your first year and you enter your second year, you can go through the process, the OCI and infirm interview process. And when I entered into that process, I I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do as a lawyer. I was interested in working at a law firm. That seemed to be what everybody was doing and it sounded like a great idea. So I needed to share with interviewers what it was that I wanted. And at the time my roommate and I were really enjoying intellectual property. So we said, we wanna be IP lawyers. Now, uh, neither of us in the end became IP lawyers. We actually, neither of us is currently practicing law. We've both chosen to do something different. I think we're both quite content. But um, that initial decision stage for me wasn't clear cut. It wasn't something that I knew that I wanted to do. When I did join a firm, so I did, I I articled on Bay Street and I had a full, full service rotation. I did litigation, corporate tax, all of that. And what I found was that my expectations going in, I wasn't really sure what to expect. I thought I would probably become a solicitor just based on my personality and where my interests were in law school. But what I found in practice is, number one, litigation was busier than the other departments. And so most of my work was litigation-flavored work. What I found was that I then developed relationships with litigators, and I enjoyed working with them. And what I also came to love was the components of litigation that really resonated with me. So this idea of going to court I did it as a litigator, particularly as I got more senior in my role. I practiced litigation for about a dozen years. Initially, that wasn't really much of the litigation process what was really um, the focus and you'll find this in your early years if you go on to article and to practice law if you're in a firm where you're practicing litigation what you'll find is you start out and maybe you have a lot of research tasks you have document review tasks you might be helping with examinations for discovery you may have your own small claims files you might get sent out to court appearances to do fairly routine things like adjourning a trial or a court date or having um, some sort of a confirmation through the courts. So what I found was that the nature of the work really aligned with what my interests were. And in particular, the research component of it, the writing component of it, putting together arguments. I really loved the behind the scenes. So when you're in litigation and there's some major thing that has happened that has led your client to be in conflict with somebody else, you get to learn the story, you get to learn the facts, you get to really do that um, problem solving and fact finding and also probably what I loved most and probably still love most um, is is that ability to find the answer. So when you're given a research task, for example, and you go through dozens, if not hundreds of cases, and then you finally find the answer, right? There's a really satisfying feeling to that. So, um, So to answer your question, it wasn't something that I knew right away I wanted to do. It was something that was quite organic. It was a decision that I made over the course of time. And I think for lawyers who are just starting out, whether you're a student or a new lawyer, for some of you, that will be really clear from the outset. You'll know right off the bat that you want to be an employment lawyer or a litigator or a criminal lawyer. And you will then set up your path to go in that direction. And for some lawyers, that's going to be exactly what what they think they want is going to be exactly what they do want in the end. And I'd also like to say that with the benefit of time, I graduated law school 20 years ago, literally, and what i've seen is that for some lawyers they thought they wanted a certain thing they achieved that certain thing and realized wait a second actually that that practice area i thought was for me isn't for me and that it's perfectly fine if that happens you can also always change course so that's my my sort of benefit of being out of you know out by 20 years from from graduating law school that sometimes you won't know the answer initially you can figure it out Sometimes you'll know it and that will be your path. Sometimes you'll think you know it and you'll end up changing course. So there is no one right answer.
0: Paula, I love how you're really encouraging our listeners and encouraging the two of us. That's what I'm gathering too, um, to consider fluidity, but fluidity over the long term. Something that's really interesting, I gathered from your answer, is that you, you know, you and your roommate, you, you were initially like, oh, IP law, that's the way to go. And then you came upon other interests for students that are just starting out, what are the kinds of questions and concerns that they should be, I guess, asking themselves or uh, reflecting upon? Um, And I ask this because, you know, one of the, I think the key differences between Sarah and myself, and one of the reasons why on the U of T Welcome Day we got on so well is because I think both of us are quite type A, both of us are real go-getters, But I would say, Sarah, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're someone that came into law school with one kind of law really uh, in mind, and you're very passionate, and, you know, fingers crossed, you'll continue to be passionate in it and continue to do really great things. But for me, you know, I'm going into law school with just being really open-minded and eager. But to some extent, that's causing me quite a bit of anxiety because this, I don't want to be a little too freeform. I do want to have the kinds of right questions and the right kinds of considerations. So for students like me, what would be the kinds of uh, questions you recommend us asking ourselves?
2: I absolutely love that you're asking that question, Meg, because I think it's so reflective of how students are when they go into law school. Some have a very clear picture of what they want and some it's still an open question. So I think some of the questions that you want to ask yourself or some of the things that you want to notice is when you're enrolled in your classes, for example, you're going to probably pick classes that are requirements. So the courses that you must take and then you'll have your electives. And I'd invite you to pay really close attention to the courses and the instructors. Where you feel almost like a pull, like you're drawn toward them, you have a natural interest, you have a natural ability sometimes. Although, if you really like something and you don't get a good mark, I wouldn't let that dissuade you from pursuing that if that's what you're truly passionate about. So, I'd really pay attention to your own instincts. I'd think about what you envision for yourself in the long run. Is it that you want to work in a law firm? Do you want to work in government? Would you like to be? A professor at a law school? Would you like to be doing work on an international level? So ask yourself what you think it is that you want. And what I think would be really helpful that I did not do at your stage, and I wish I had done, is to be really um, kind of open and willing to reach out to more senior practitioners, instructors, People who you see out there, you can find them on LinkedIn. You can basically, you'll have so much more access to them now than we had 20 years ago. LinkedIn wasn't a thing, nor was I minded to do it. So when lawyers come to your school, for example, to deliver presentations, ask them questions, figure out what their life is like. What is their workday? Actually, all about. And the more questions you ask, the more information you can gather. If you've got a lawyer who's visiting from a law firm, maybe they're sponsoring an event and they're there to meet students, go and talk to them. Chances are they are really keen to have people come up to talk to them so that they don't need to do that awkward, you know, breaking into a group of students and trying to strike up a conversation. Believe it or not, they love that as much as you would love it if they did that for you. So, go up to people, ask them questions, ask as many questions as you as you can to really get to know about their practice, what it is they love about their practice, how they got there, some of the challenges they have in their practice, because what you will find is that then you will resonate with the answers. They might say something about their day. Maybe they are a tax lawyer. I'm just throwing this out. I'm not saying this is true of tax lawyers, but maybe they say, you know, I love my job. I have of my work is solo work and 10% of it is more of an engagement work versus maybe you have an employment lawyer who says, you know, 50% of my time I'm in court and 50% of my time I'm working in teams and, or maybe it's 40 and then 10% alone. I'm making up these numbers, but think about the variables that are of interest to you. Maybe ask some questions around that and you'll start to get a sense of what appeals to you and what doesn't appeal to you.
1: And do you think that experimenting with extracurriculars, clinics, different potentially practical experience that students can get, do you think that that's something also that could help potentially direct them in the specific area of the law that they would want to make their career? Uh, and for you, for example, when you decided to go into litigation, it seems like it came partially from that summer job that you got. With the OCIs and having that interaction with the lawyers at the firm, so do you think that doing that earlier on, even through that more volunteer-like experience, pro bono, different things like that, could also be helpful?
2: Yeah, and and you know, I, I look at it now from the perspective of again uh, being twenty years out of law school, and I see students who are entering law firms, and I look at their credentials and their qualifications and their level of sophistication and I'm blown away. I think you, your generation is incredible and very resourceful and um, quite decisive at an early stage for a lot of you, not everybody. Um, so I, I think when you're going on to apply, whether it's a law firm or some other organization, the more experience you have, the stronger your application is. So from a, a job seeker perspective, it's never going to hurt you to have Um, experiences on your CV that show how you um, engage with your interest in law outside of your course curriculum. So in terms of where you want to spend that time, I think each student needs to evaluate their own capacity to carry a course load and whatever other commitments they have going on, and then to uh, think about where they want to spend some of that time, what they want to learn about, and Most schools have a legal clinic and I volunteered when I was in law school at a legal clinic and I thought it was great experience because you get to have face-to-face contact with people who have problems and you start that process of helping people with their problems. Chances are, in addition to that, you may have job experience where you've been in customer service. You've helped people for problems or with their problems. You've maybe done some level of policy work. I mean, there's all sorts of backgrounds that you may have going into law school. And so, for your extracurricular activities, absolutely get involved in committees if you're interested in environmental law, for example, or if you're interested in business law, or if you're spearheading um, a women's initiative, there's all these different opportunities for you to become involved with the uh, sort of the, the, the opportunities outside of the Core curriculum of your program which will help you engage with other students it will help you further your interests it will help you engage with members of the legal community with your university and and so it's really again going back to that question may you asked earlier about you know how do you know what it is you want to do you get out there and you learn you ask questions and you follow that thread right what what resonates with you and I'm going to make a plug I'm going to make a plug here for tuning into your own um, intuition. I think one of the challenges with law as a student and as a practitioner is that we enter into a profession where logic and facts are really placed at the top of the hierarchy, sometimes at the expense of our intuition and our emotions. And what can happen is that some lawyers will lose um Connection with how they're actually feeling and their own uh, intuition and 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 views on certain things, and so I would invite you and everybody listening to to stay connected with what rings true for you, because ultimately that's going to help guide you to um, follow your interests and a career that ultimately is most fulfilling for you.
0: I really like that answer, and I really really enjoy your um, encouragement to. Trust in one's own instinct. You know, we have, we just recorded an episode on procrastination and we hope to record an episode on imposter syndrome. And I think one of the really uh, key ways that people become insecure is because sometimes this is a kind of profession that really uh, gatekeeps and really tries to. Make you have that kind of um, scarcity mentality, and makes you think that you're not, you're not good enough, and makes you think that it's a really competitive rather than a collaborative environment. Something else too, and I only really uh, realized this this year is to be cognizant of keeping play as important as work, and having a personal life that is as fulfilling and important as a professional life, even in a field like law, where I have a feeling, and you know, we're we're starting school next week, so. Don't want to say anything definitive, but I, I surmise that it's really, easily, re, really easy to get fully uh, inundated by law. Um, and so it's something where I think folks perhaps down the line can come to regret not uh, balancing their life enough. And it, it seems, Paula, what you're saying is part of following one's instincts and trusting one's feelings uh, ties very much to how I feel about this kind of topic.
2: Yeah, and if I can add to that, uh, I think balance is going to look different for everybody. So you may decide that there are pockets of your life where you're going to put work at the first and foremost, and yes, you will sacrifice sort of the fun elements or many of the fun elements, and that's okay. I don't think we need to beat ourselves up over putting our professional work ahead of other priorities at certain pockets of time. I also, going back to what you were saying about that concept of self-trust, um, and the legal profession, I, I think what we can sometimes see, especially in a, in, a, in a field like law, where there are so many rules and, and external markers. So right now you're starting law school, you had to write exams, you know, the LSAT, and probably uh, have certain GPA in order to get in. So there's these objective external markers that you need to meet. Then you get into school, you have courses you need to take, you've got exams that you're writing. Initially, everything is very standardized, you go through standardized processes. And so what that Reflects is almost uh, an initial phase where so much of what you're doing is based on external markers. And one of the core tenets of the work that I do is to kind of reintroduce if necessary, but also emphasize that in addition to um, the external markers, what's equally, if not more important, is to also be aware of those internal markers. And there's a question and 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 sort of spoiler alert. Um, I was given some questions for today's interview, and one of them was about the difference between coaching and between law. And I think it's appropriate to mention it here. The biggest difference between my coach training and my legal training was that in a coach training environment, you're holding your client, the coachee, as the ultimate authority of their own life. And so the answers come from within, which is quite different if you're looking at law where the answers are actually very much outside of you. They're in a case, they're in a in a program, they're in a process. And so what I think is really important for students to bear in mind is that as they progress in their career, more and more they're going to want to develop almost like an entrepreneurial mindset. It's a mindset of, okay, I understand what the expectations are. I understand what is being required of me, what the objective benchmarks are. And also doing that internal analysis to make sure that what you want aligns with the objectives that you're reaching for. Because when you get out of alignment, that's where you start to have, sometimes it's procrastination, sometimes it's um, other challenges. I think imposter syndrome, confidence, all of that. these These are lifelong challenges for, I'd say, most professionals who are doing work that is difficult and challenging. As long as you're doing hard work and taking on new tasks, you're going to have that feeling of fear and doubt, because that's part of what you've signed up for. Um, but certainly you're, you're going to want to um, align what you're doing with what you truly desire, not just what is expected of you.
1: And I wanted to know just from your personal experience, did you always naturally kind of trust your instincts and look inwards for some of these answers? Or is it something that you started doing maybe later on after a specific experience or something um marking that maybe happened to you that made you realize how important and fundamental it was
2: so I I think I've always had I've always had somewhat of a drive to do things a certain way for example when I chose to go to McGill as a law school I was interested in it because it had an international flavor to it. At the time I was you know, an international relations graduate, I was really interested in this idea of being surrounded by a community of international students and having access to international law courses. And so I've always had some level of being motivated and driven by something that's internal. But I would say that the ratios have sort of between um, almost like a very conscious and an unconscious motivators I think the ratios have dialed up significantly. I think in my early 40s or my late 30s, early 40s, after I had kids really, because that's when I was really forced to start making decisions. Before kids, I had all the time in the world. I didn't have constraints in the same way that I, constraints on my time and um, freedom, I should say, because once the children arrived, I was very much um, motivated by their schedules. I still am. I still have to plan my days around, um, around them, which is a blessing to have but it also forced me to be so much more uh, disciplined about how I spend my time and also more reflective about what's most important to me so as i've gained in maturity i'm older and as i've gained in experience i've also and through my coaching work as well now i'm a coach i'm surrounded i surround myself with coaches and i'm very much of the mentality of of creating what it is that you want and so uh, absolutely i've i've gone from feeling much more like I need to follow a certain path or there are paths out there and i can pick one but i can't really create my own versus now where i see it a lot differently where i'm much more proactive in going out and creating the social um the social connections the professional connections the work that i want the nature of what i do i'm much more intentional about that than i was as a as a student and as a junior lawyer and i would invite everybody who's starting out at whatever stage you're at to really focus on on your own internal drivers like what it is that you want and to be as proactive as you can be in creating that and and once you get on that path once you start developing that discipline in yourself it only grows so it's um it's a it's a skill and it's a skill that can be developed
0: paula i'm glad you mentioned uh, your time at mcgill because I, I think I kind of want to ask you a little bit about what it's like, or what it was like, being trained in both civil and common law. Um, do you think that it provided you with a uh, like unique or possibly
2: advantageous outlook in in your career? Yeah, it's it's such an interesting question, and uh, one that I, when I saw it on the page, actually, it kind of brought me back many many years. And the program that I did at the time. I suspect is probably quite different from the current program. I think I was maybe the second or third year of the trans systemic program. I don't even know if it's called that anymore, where the common law and civil law were taught side by side. And I, from an academic perspective, I enjoyed it. I thought it was very interesting to learn the common law perspective and then to learn the civil law perspective and then to be able to compare them. I did find it challenging in the sense that if you were to learn Spanish and Italian at the same time, it might be more confusing than if you learned Spanish (laughs) and then learned Italian. But um, at the same time, I, I appreciated it Uh, from a practical perspective. It has not really made an impact on my career path because I went on to practice law in english speaking common law jurisdictions so it was i was initially in ontario then i was in bc both of which common law english speaking um provinces for the purposes of what i was doing i know there's parts of the the provinces that are more more so in ontario french speaking than in bc so so practically speaking no i don't think it really made a difference i don't think anybody in my common law practice was was particularly interested in my my civil law experience, it might have come up a little bit during my articling because I was in Ontario. There might have been some cross-border stuff, but nothing of significance. Now, if, for example, you are planning to practice in a civil law jurisdiction, of course, that would be useful if you're planning to practice in Quebec, if you're in Canada, um, or if you want to have more of an international flavored career. So if you want to, for example, work at the European Union or do something where you're going to be engaging in legal systems that are civil law jurisdictions, then absolutely, it would probably have a practical significance on your particular career. So um, to answer your question, I'm glad I did it. I don't think I would change that decision if I went back in time, because that's exactly what I wanted at the time. And I enjoyed the academic experience of it. But as a practical matter for my particular career path, I don't think it had, um, I don't, I don't think it had a huge impact.
1: That makes sense. So really to base it on your interests in terms of your legal practice, right? Like you said, internationally, it might be very helpful because, I correct me if I'm wrong, I think a majority of jurisdictions practice or follow more the civil law kind of structure than common law, at least internationally. So I I see how that could be relevant if someone wants to make more of an international career. But when it comes to staying in Canada or, let's say, even the U.S., our neighbor, um, common law would be more relevant. Hmm.
2: I, I think that's probably I think that's probably the case. And again, it's that individual decision. Is there a practical or academic reason for you to pursue that? Degree the com- the combined degree versus or or a civil law degree you don't necessarily need to have the common law degree if you're not planning to practice in the common law uh, what is most relevant to you what's of most interest to you so um, absolutely I think it's it's highly individual and I'm I'm not saying that I don't think it's a worthwhile program I'm just from my experience in terms of the actual practice of law it didn't really have an impact um, in terms of the application of it, I didn't find myself um, going to the Civil Code of Quebec <laughs> to, to answer very many questions once I was in practice. I, I enjoyed it very much during law school, but it was um, that was pretty much the extent of it for me.
0: Definitely, Paula. I want us to um, move on now to talking a little bit more about your coaching business, as well as actually your 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 graduate work in coaching Um, I mean I'm gonna ask that question because I I did a couple of years of graduate work uh, graduate schooling before coming to the University of Toronto Law School but let's start off so you you did years of litigation can you bring us uh, back to that perspective of what made you want to uh, move away from that line of profession and seek something like coaching
2: It's funny because I don't know that there's one single thing that happened that kind of led me to coaching. Um, As I mentioned, I practiced litigation for about 12 years before transitioning into coaching. Most of that time was at a large national firm doing commercial litigation. And my role was in the firm, um, Initially I was doing sort of more of the broader work and then as I uh, sort of matured or um, moved ahead, I was really more interested in the research and writing component of it. Um, I love that type of work. And at the same time, I was always drawn to the people side of things. I I very much um, enjoyed the, the interaction with other lawyers. I was also really interested in the personal and professional development and the research in writing, supporting junior lawyers. And um, sort of as an aside, when I was on one of, so I had two children and on my second mat leave, I discovered coaching. And initially it was coaching in a non-academic, it was a sort of fitness coaching app And it fascinated me how it was this thing that I would, you know, log into and this voice from outer space would comment on my levels of activity and all that. And I I found it really encouraging. I found that I was motivated and interested in doing sort of pushing myself just based on this virtual coaching experience. And I thought this would be so great to have in a career capacity if you had somebody who was there to support you, who you could check in with, and I wonder if such a thing exists. And so I typed lawyer coach into Google and realized that this was actually a thing. And that planted the seed, and and it's a seed that I ended up nurturing and ultimately pursuing. And what I love about coaching is um, I I just – so I I mentioned before this idea that each client, each person is the uh, authority in their own life. They know best. And that what I saw in the legal community was – and this is among lawyers that I knew – friends, peers, where um, I saw that lawyers could benefit. I mean, this is before we had the pandemic. This is before mental health and legal profession was quite as publicly discussed as it is now. But you could tell that people, some people in particular were really struggling. And yet because of the culture so you know this idea that you want to appear confident you want to appear like you know what you're doing it's kind of like when you're on social media people post their family photos or their trip photos where they're having a great time in Italy they're not posting you know pictures of themselves sitting at home alone eating a bowl of Cheerios sad because whatever has gone wrong in their lives it's kind of the same thing right you're so used to seeing people's outsides and then you're comparing that to your insides and so what I found was where there was an opportunity was for lawyers who wanted support, support that wasn't necessarily somebody that they knew professionally within their firm, for example. Sometimes there's there's problems that you're having that you don't want to talk about with somebody that you work with because you're concerned about confidentiality. Um, for some lawyers, um, counselling is a great option, but for others, it's not quite what they're looking for. With coaching, there's more of a typically more of a forward focus in terms of what it is you're doing there's a strategic element to it so if there's a particular challenge that you're looking to overcome or an opportunity that you're seeking to go after and what you want is that help accountability assistance and goal setting that was what really appealed to me i also think and this is kind of reflected in the work that i do now that there are all these so-called soft skills that go along with the practice of law most of which i had no idea about when i started out as a lawyer i was a young student who'd had restaurant experience i'd worked at blockbuster and other service-based businesses back in my undergrad high school and maybe a little bit during law school days but i'd never had a job where i sat in an office or worked in the environment that is office life and so there are all these different pieces to that and for your listeners they will find that. If they've never worked in an office before and they've never worked as a lawyer in an office before, what they'll find is that there's the interactions that you have with others. There's developing trust with your colleagues and with your internal clients, aka the other lawyers that you work for. There's um, a a marketing component. So even if you're working in an organization where you're not directly soliciting work from external clients, you still need to develop a market within your law firm so that you have work that will Um, that will fuel you and developing the relationships that you have within your organization, finding mentors, being a mentor, learning how to manage your time, learning to overcome procrastination. All of these things are components of a legal practice that aren't necessarily taught in law school. I think now there's more of a shift and perhaps a more holistic approach, depending on the school, to learn some of these uh, professionalism type skills At the time when I started, these weren't really being taught anywhere. You just kind of had to figure it out. So part of what I wanted to do as a coach, and I do do this now, I have the benefit of being able to speak at firms, at organizations. I'm helping out at our law school. Well, our law school. I I live in Vancouver, so UBC is doing a networking event. So I'm helping them out with some networking and and helping their students um, with that. So there's, there's, there's now, this is part of why I do this work, is to give access to lawyers and to students of information and tools that they can use to enhance their practice. So there's there's a lot there that I'm drawn to. I'm interested in it. When you mentioned procrastination, I just want to know everything about it because that's a topic I, I'm fascinated by and I feel like I can help people there. So um so that's really what what drew me into coaching and I'm sorry I, I've even lost track of the question am I <laughs> am I answering the question i I actually
0: because i I did a couple of years at Columbia and uh, it was a it was English literature graduate work that I was doing so a lot of it was my own research and learning, but that I w- also had a teaching component so i'm I'm someone who's really fascinated with pedagogy um, and I think, a lot of the supplementary material that Sarah and I are getting for our intro to law school, most of it has to do with how do you learn as a law student? How do you teach as a, as a law professor? Like This is how your professors are going to be teaching you. right? You're going to be turning to the Socratic method. You're going to be um, having to issue spot. You're going to have to read in this specific kind of way. You're going to have to interact with your professors and classmates in certain ways. Um, and, and those were kinds of questions I thought a lot about when I was a teacher. So I, m- one of my follow-up questions for you is, when you were learning to be a coach and learning to teach as a coach, right, or learning to, to coach and learn to mentor as a coach, how did that compare to the law school and law experience? Um, it's,
2: it's I, I'd say, I mean, the law school experience is very much learning about the law, learning from the cases, learning from your instructors and then answering an exam. So doing a written exam and or writing a paper, having some component of the um, kind of the, the the showing that you can do the skill right in a in a moot type exercise in my coaching training. So that was it's the, the training that I did. It's um, it's it's ICF recognized so the International Coaching Federation. It's recognized by them. Uh, at the University of Royal Roads so the school over on Vancouver Island um I say over on because it's a ferry ride from where I live and the program itself was designed in such a way that it could be done remotely so there were a couple of weeks where we were there in person meeting everybody and the rest of it was done through online classes and through group learning so so there were a number of differences number 1 um know, some of the learning style was similar in that they had concepts that they would teach us, but there was much more of an emphasis on experiential learning. So after teaching a component of a lesson, if they were teaching us active listening, for example, then we did exercises where we would actively listen to our peers and provide feedback. I learned, I learned a lot about um, the different ways of looking at problems. So for example, we learned about uh, appreciative inquiry versus problem solving. So problem solving is where there's a problem and you focus on the problem, you try to fix it. Appreciative inquiry in a nutshell is basically looking at a system and identifying what is going right in that system and then building on the strengths of the system, which is a fundamentally different perspective from problem solving, right? You're looking at two completely different, uh, it's it's two different lenses, right? It was kind of uh, one of our readings, I think, was the learner versus the judger mindset, which you can appreciate as a lawyer. I'm like, oh, that's so interesting, right, to look at it from a judgment perspective versus a curiosity perspective. So for me, it was really just almost like reversing the way that my mind was wired so that I was no longer looking outside for answers. And instead, I was looking at the questions that would yield the answers that I was looking for. So that was a big shift. Um, the experiential component of it, I think, was huge. I think one of the things that I struggled with up until coaching, and I think I sometimes do now, is uh, academically knowing, uh, you know, it's kind of like that good student mentality, right? I can write an exam and do really well on an exam, but if you ask me to then turn around and put that into practice, I have a harder time doing it, largely, you know, and I and I would say I've gotten way better at this now because I'm, I'm a coach and I do things from my practice that are scary to me like public speaking getting out there leading discussions all of these things are skills that I've developed because I really really want to help people in my capacity as a coach and so I've chosen to cross that bridge between knowing what I need to do and actually doing it so in the coach training there was very much an emphasis on on engaging right there was a lot of group work there was um, this program called Moodle which is like a, a learning platform you're smiling so I can tell you've used it for the benefit of those who don't Who've never used Moodle. It's kind of like um it's kind of like a Facebook type platform where you can post things and everyone can see what you what you write. And we had to do like, I don't know, three postings every week or something. And it was a cohort of about forty students, forty two, I think. And to me, that was initially terrifying because the idea of even sending a group thread to me was just not something I was comfortable with. But now I had to do this. If I wanted to get my credits, I had to put myself out there in front of this small group. So, To me, there was just an experiential component to that learning that was different from what I had been trained for in law school. And I think also, um, I'd say in a coaching, specifically in a coaching type of program, it was more of, um, it was. I think it attracts a certain type of person. So these are all people who are interested in supporting other people. And a lot of the students were coming in with an HR background. There were a number of lawyers who were in the professional development spheres of the legal practice. So there's just this, it was a very supportive community. Law school is also supportive when you find your pockets, but it's not foremost and center. It's something that you cultivate rather than something that is, um, almost built into the curriculum like when you're building into a coaching when you're doing a coach training program and you're coaching your colleagues there's a different relationship that builds versus what you're doing in a law school classroom environment does that does that answer the question is there is
0: no that's it i just i just find um anything to do with pedagogy and mentoring to be very fascinating so i wanted to press you on that a little bit yeah no
2: it's it is fascinating the other thing i did is each table, so when we did in person, each table had a uh, a little container with squishy toys <laughs> because <laughs> apparently having something tactile that you can play with helps you focus during your training. Another thing that we did is we'd sometimes have music breaks, so we would do a little bit of lessons, then we'd stop, we'd get up and dance for a few minutes. I was always kind of embarrassed to dance, so I didn't do that as much as some people, but. <laughs> So there were things that were built into the learning style. and This was an adult learning uh, environment that were quite different from what I'd been accustomed to. A lot of group work, which was fascinating to me because as law students, um, you mentioned at the beginning, you're both very type A. And so uh, I was surrounded by students, some of whom were type A, some of whom were like, you know, I just want to pass the course. like I just want to pass. And to me, the idea of just passing a course is like, what? Like Aren't we here to get an A? Like you know, it just didn't didn't resonate with my thinking, but um but it was interesting, right? It was just being exposed to different ways of, of engaging with other students.
1: And so did this different way of learning kind of contribute to how you now create and deliver digital programming for public legal education? Did you kind of draw on that at all? Um
2: so I, I would say, so there's different education that I do. So the public legal education is a webinar-specific format, which I'd say on some level is informed by that. Um, it's certainly informed by uh, by creating dialogue. I think people like to hear dialogue rather than be spoken at. Um, I, I think where I probably use my coach training the most is when I am delivering... Um, sessions. So if I'm doing a session at a law firm or in my coaching practice, I've got a group that I'm running right now, a group of women lawyers where we meet um you know twice a month and I and and the first lesson of the month is me doing more of an educational component to it. So I try to integrate coaching concepts into delivery of information. So instead of delivering a wall of information, I try to engage with each of the learners and one of my favorite tips, and I encourage anybody to um, use this, is to invite takeaways at the end of a session. So I'll let everybody know at the beginning, I'm going to ask each of you to share a takeaway at the end of the lesson. And what that does is number one, it kind of puts people on the spot in a way, because now they're thinking about, okay, I need to actually share something in the class. So they're a little bit more tuned in to what's interesting to them. And then at the end of the lesson, when everyone shares a takeaway, it's really interesting to see what resonates with different members of the group. It also provides a recap. So, you know, how you kind of do a summary at the end that recaps some of the information and also helps you know as an instructor, okay, this worked, this maybe didn't resonate as much because nobody mentioned it. And it gets people engaged. I I think most people enjoy being engaged. I am quite like, as I said, I've shifted a lot in order to do what I do now, but I was never the person that would raise their hand. I'm quite shy. I didn't like sharing. So I get it. I get it that people don't always always want to speak up. But I think once you become a person that speaks up in that kind of context, you engage with others, you kind of develop that skill. So it's, um, I think overall, that's what I aim for. I I try to create dialogue if I can not everybody wants dialogue. Some people want to just sit and they want to learn and they want to be invisible. And that's fine. Others want to engage. So it kind of depends on the nature of what is being covered and, and who's in the audience.
1: But I like that you're also presenting kind of the benefits of engaging in class. I know that even you were mentioning that you were not necessarily someone that would typically you know, raise their hand and, and want to comment or uh, participate actively in those discussions. I know that I was definitely like that during my undergraduate degree and slowly but surely, I've kind of changed to be more inquisitive and wanting to participate in this. And I think it's important to note for our listeners when they're going to be going into law school and the fact that they might be forced into those discussions or answering those questions. And that although it's not necessarily something that they will enjoy, maybe, or not something that they would want to naturally engage in, that there are some benefits that they can actually get from it and that it can help them. What they're learning, and maybe even going deeper into it.
2: That's absolutely, and and Sarah, I'm glad that you mentioned that because um, I, I think there is a learning opportunity there. When I went through school, again, this is going back 20 years, there was one class where the Socratic method was actually truly enforced, and everybody was always so scared to go to class because what if they got called on? And so I think that fear of speaking up in public is one that resonates with a lot of people, and so my advice to anybody who feels that way is that it's something that is a learnable skill. I remember I never wanted to raise my hand because I turn bright red when I speak and it's embarrassing to me. And yet at the same time, by not doing it, I think I missed out on opportunities to just do it more and become more comfortable. So if that is something that one of the listeners can relate to, and they want to challenge themselves to speak up in class, I would encourage, anyone in that situation to set little goals for themselves to say, okay, this week, I'm going to raise my hand once, I just have to do it once. And just to develop a practice of increasing their comfort levels of raising their hand in the classroom, because ultimately, what ends up happening is that then you're having a discussion with a judge, or you're in conversation with a lawyer at your firm, or you're sitting in a meeting, and you have an idea, and you want to share it. And so the more you can get used to that having the discomfort of raising your hand, but then overcoming that discomfort and seeing that the results actually aren't so bad. Sometimes they're actually really positive. The more you can reinforce that for yourself, the more comfort you'll have going forward. So it is is a great learning opportunity and one that doesn't necessarily come naturally. And
1: often I feel like when you're encouraging yourself to participate and you're raising your hand versus, let's say, the instructor actually asking you a question and cold calling you, I feel like it can also make the experience a bit easier because you can pick and choose where you want to weigh in and do it when you feel comfortable and it's a topic that you feel like you've really mastered or you really have something to add that you feel would be helpful to the class versus... If you're called upon, it might be more stressful if it just so happens that it's one of the things that you didn't quite understand or that you were confused about. And so at least from someone who was originally very shy and didn't do it at all and now often raises my hand and participates. I think that that's a way to do it that can be helpful is making sure that you're the one pushing yourself to do it versus being called upon eventually i feel like it makes it a lot easier the best defense is offense exactly that kind and, of approach.
2: You know, absolutely absolutely and it's funny cuz as as you're as you're talking um it reminds me of social media so i was a student before social and a law student before social media was really a thing but one of the principles that i believe in the land of social media is that we don't want to always be posting own posts all the time like it's really great when someone else posts and you can go up and post a reply or comment on something that somebody else has said and so i think for someone who's who's developing that skill and wanting to speak up more another strategy might be completely seemingly unrelated but to encourage the other students who are doing that. So if you're in a classroom and somebody raises their hand and they make a point and you might follow up with them and say, you know what, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because that's a question that I was also wondering or I thought it was a really great question. And so you almost become, you then support them and. And so next time you go to raise your hand, maybe that person implicitly or explicitly is also supporting you. So almost like, it's almost like liking somebody else's comment, right? The, 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 you know, initially I think social media mimicked real life. I think now real life can in some ways mimic social media, but how can you support others in doing that? And I think that in turn, helps everybody's overall confidence and also creating a safe space, right? Because I think that's a part of it. We don't want to raise our hands because we don't want to be judged. We don't want to say the wrong thing. We don't want to bother people, whatever it happens to be. And so the more we can create a safe space where we feel like our voices need to be heard, that what we have to say is important, that if I have this question, chances are somebody else is going to benefit from this as well. If I have a point that I'm making, same thing. I think the more that we can adopt that sort of um, mindset, the more, the fewer the fewer um, internal points of resistance we'll have when it comes to actually raising our hands and making the point.
0: One last talking point, Paula. We have mm-hmm. to talk a little bit about your podcast because, you know, listeners, to take you behind the curtain a little bit. This is one of the things that, one of the reasons why Sarah and myself are so excited to um, talk to Paula So Paula, you have a podcast of your own and please tell us a little bit about it. What motivated you to start a podcast and what was the process of creating um, a podcast like?
2: Oh, thank you so much, Meg. Um, So I have a podcast called, as you mentioned at the beginning, it's called the Joyful Practice for Women Lawyers podcast. It is is an effect for women lawyers, but non-women lawyers, all lawyers are welcome to listen to it. And I think it covers topics that are, For the most part quite broadly applicable i created it because i knew from the very outset so back when i was thinking about becoming a coach that this is something that's relatively new there are a number of coaches out there and yet i think it's still something that continues to gain in um in awareness and so i knew that if i wanted to become a coach that i also needed to have an educational component i needed to make my work known to other people And I also knew when I, before I started my coaching practice, that I wanted to make information that was accessible to everybody. I didn't want it to be something where if you didn't have money to pay for coaching, you would not have access to any resources. And I also wanted it to be something that people could access anonymously. For some people who are struggling, they may not want anybody else to know that they have challenges when it comes to their confidence levels, that they're, you know, worried about, you know, difficult conversations, whatever that might be. So I wanted it to be something that was available two people anonymously. So I knew before I created a podcast that there was something I wanted to create. And as I entered my coaching practice and saw what was happening online, um, what people were doing in the digital spaces, a podcast seemed to be a really great way to do this. And so I decided to create a podcast. As you know, when you create a podcast, you need to be pretty intentional about who you're creating it for, who is it that you want to have listened to your podcast what is it that you're trying to share? What kind of messages are you trying to share? For me, I'm also looking to build a community. My long-term objective is really to bring together women lawyers to help support each other and to speak a common language, which is probably the language, as I'm sort of speaking and thinking out loud, the language of what I'm speaking about in the podcast. And, and so what is the podcast about? Well, it's a platform. It's a place for me to share the work that I am doing. So you'll see if you scroll through the titles, there are podcast episodes. There's a ton about time management. That's just something that really resonates with me. There are, and my clients as well. And it's, um, you know, practice management is something that comes up quite a bit. Um, That's partially informed by some of the clients that I've had who have ADHD. So that's something that was um, almost a surprise when I started out my coaching practice, a number of my clients and continue continually um, have ADHD, and so they would share that as part of our our discussions, and so and I've had the opportunity to learn a lot more about that, and so that's being able to provide support to individuals who may struggle with uh, some of the common challenges, so time management, procrastination, um, organization. So you'll find episodes with that type of flavor. There's a lot uh, about confidence. I think confidence is one of the Key pieces. I just did an episode about confidence and time management, looking at those two pieces, but then taking them together because a lot of challenges that we can experience with our time, whether it's an over scheduled calendar because we don't have the confidence to say no to somebody, whether it's taking longer on tasks because we don't want to let go of the finished product, whether we're procrastinating on the task because we have fears that the final product isn't going to match up with our expectations. So there's a link there. And so being able to identify that link and then being able to work with it, there are episodes where I interview other lawyers, mostly non-practicing, I would say, some practicing, to ask them about their experiences, to showcase for other lawyers that there are Things that you can do with your law degree that may not be the cookie cutter, what everybody else is doing with their law degrees to show that there are examples of that. Um, there are episodes about difficult relationships or difficult conversations. I just recorded op- a podcast about difficult feedback. So I take really what I'm seeing in my coaching practice, some of the conversations that I'm having with the clients that I work with and then bringing them, I obviously don't disclose anything about any particular client. I'm very careful not to reveal any information that would be um, that anybody could ever identify somebody with, but the themes there I think are really important so that anybody who is interested can scroll through and say, you know what, I'm, I'm really struggling with something. Maybe there's a podcast episode about it. Oh, look, here it is. And then, almost like having a mentor or a coach or somebody who can just give them a perspective to help them feel like they're not alone with the challenge that they're having that there are lots of different options for them and to ultimately empower them to make tangible and practical changes for themselves whether it's a mindset shift whether it's an actual shift in how they operate in their practice so that they can experience, as the podcast title suggests, more joy, right? And what is joy to me? Joy is being able to find pleasure in the work itself, right? To to there is no end, right? We're going to hit milestones after milestones. They're never going to end. So we can't expect that we're going to find happiness at the end of a particular milestone. It's an on and I didn't make that up myself. That's the concept Sean Acor talks about, who's a happiness psychologist who works out of Stanford. I don't know if he's still at Stanford, but last time I checked so it's this idea of being able to 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 harness the 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 power and the the fact that our work never ends and to be able to find joy in the process so that we enjoy our work and that means finding what you love it means finding a balance that works for you that might not be the balance that works for everybody and to have um to develop that self trust that self compassion and self direction so that you're being intentional about your choices so that's a long way of explaining the podcast and the creation of it Challenging, right? I mean, going and putting yourself out there and and um, putting your voice out there for the world to hear is terrifying. But I'm glad I did it, and it's something that I think it 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 serves a purpose. I use it with my clients. They'll have a problem, and I'll say, you know what? I've done five episodes on this topic. If you're interested, you can listen to them. So it's a great resource to have. And I think it just, um, you know, I've had feedback from lawyers who I've never met who say you know this was really helpful for me thank you this episode about you know the relationship between i think it was one about time scarcity this was really helpful for me or you know i was looking at your career transitions and that was really great or oh now i know that there's more options for lawyers there's there's lots of different um topics there and so i think that it does serve um it serves the community and, and 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 helps people feel less alone and more empowered And likewise, I mean, you're here creating a podcast that will be so helpful for students and junior lawyers who are trying to navigate different decisions and they'll be able to scroll through the titles that you have for your podcast and get the help that they need. So I think it's a fabulous resource and I'm thrilled that you're doing it and and I'm so amazed that you're doing it. You know, right as you're beginning your lockers, it's amazing. So, hats off to you.
0: I mean, it's not pure altruism. We always joke in, in pretty <laughs> much every episode that we get as much from creating this podcast and getting to speak to people like you. You know, like it really is quite self-motivated as well. <laughs> Definitely.
2: Absolutely, and it's and it's amazing to see what opportunities come from it too, right? It's it's um it's a really neat process hard and it requires a commitment. There's a lot of work that goes into it. So um, again, hats off for, for doing it. And, and again, I think it just provides a really useful resource for so many people.
0: One last question, Paula, if you feel comfortable, what uh, what would be one of the most inspiring stories that you've encountered um, on your podcast, in your work coaching, um, any aspect of your profession?
2: Yeah. And, and I love this question. And I I tried to think of a single story and I I don't think I can narrow it down to one single most inspiring story. Here's, here's what I have noticed. It is that the, the stories that are most inspiring to me are the ones where, and sometimes it's a client that I'm working with and sometimes it's a lawyer that I meet and I learn of their story, but it's, it's, being able to recognize at a certain point that what you're doing isn't working and that you're being called to do something else. And you may not know exactly what that thing is that you're being called to do is, you have to figure it out. And so the most inspiring stories for me are the the lawyers who, who kind of, I don't want to say wake up because that sounds kind of patronizing, but it is almost an awakening, right? It's like, they are going through their lives and there's something wrong. And so they they, they, they do that work, right? They figure out what the problem is. They figure out what it is that they want to do or what they think that they want to do. And then they have the courage to make a move, to make a decision and to make a move. And it can be messy. It can be complicated. It can be disorganized. It can be unsuccessful the first time around and lead to another decision not far after that. But it's the willingness to be courageous and to step into greater alignment with themselves to take the risk to literally bet on themselves and to create an impact in a way that pushes up against barriers, whether they're real or perceived barriers. And one of the things that I love, and this is something that inspires me in the work that I do, is this concept of a growing edge i think we all have a growing edge that's a term i learned in coaching school i'd never heard of it before but to me when i think about it it's like you're you're surfing on a wave there's the crest of the wave and there you are surfing and it's it's not a space you can be in 100 of the time i think it would be exhausting if we were always trying to you know balance ourselves on a surfboard but to me a really successful career the stories that are most inspiring are where you are willing to put yourself on that edge and to keep going back to that edge. And I think where people can get stuck or when they get stagnant is when there's no edge to their work. They feel a little bit complacent. It is repetitive. They're not really feeling like they're being challenged. So, so it's, it's having the courage to follow your own instincts. It's the courage to put yourself on that edge. And those are the stories that inspire me the most. And, and I think if you look at my podcast, for example, there are a number of people who have had on as guests and, I think that that is a theme that runs among every single one of those guests right they'll tell a story right where there's a moment in time where they have to make a decision and they made that decision and that was almost like the threshold between that more unconscious or or less deliberate path and one that just put them into a different um different paradigm altogether right much more self-directed much more aligned with their 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 gifts and their interests
0: That's incredible. I think we should end it there with those words. That's (laughs) lovely. Thank you so much, Paula.
2: Well, thank you so much, Meg. Thank you so much, Sarah. It has been such a pleasure to be on your podcast today. And, And again, congratulations on the work you're doing. I think it's so incredible and such a great resource for everybody who tunes in.
1: Thank you so much. That means a lot.
0: Thank you for listening to Beyond the Briefcase. It was so inspiring to have Paula on the show. We really appreciate you sharing with us your experience with self-trust, with coaching, with experiential learning, with starting and managing a podcast, and with empowering women and people in general in law. Um, it's I found it to be really, really quite insightful. <laughs> um, Paula, how should um, our listeners get in touch with you if they're interested?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Megan. And thank you again to both of you and to everybody who's tuned in. Again, it has just been such a pleasure and an honor um, For anybody who's interested in reaching out, um, absolutely check out my podcast if you like podcasts and you're interested in learning more about the topics that I've discussed there. That is, again, the Joyful Practice for Women Lawyers podcast, and we'll put a link to that in the notes with the episode. Um, and then the other way is you can contact me through just finding me online. If you Google me, you'll find me. Um, I have an up-level lawyer coaching website. Again, we can link to that. You can find me on LinkedIn. There's lots and lots of places. And so by all means, feel free to reach out. I'm always delighted to hear from law students, lawyers, and to to help um, serve the profession in the way that, that, that I've been doing it, it. It's a pleasure. And so please do feel free to reach out.
0: Next week, we're going to speak to Mathilde Dochi, uh, a lawyer in food law, who's going to be providing some of her insights in that s- line of work, as well as comparing civil law and common law. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, share with your friends, and feel free to check out our Instagram at Beyond the Briefcase Podcast to keep in touch, as well as up to date with our episodes, with guest speakers, with anything like that. Thank you, Adam, our technical producer, and of course, Thank you, listeners. I've been Meg.
1: I've been Sarah. Bye.